Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, episode 44. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Bach's music for lute. Bach's writing for the lute as a supplementary instrument in such important works as the St. John and St. Matthew Passions has been widely noted. However, it must be confessed at the outset that the whole idea of Bach's solo compositions for the lute is not without problematic elements. Bach did own a lute, and he had lutenist composer friends whom he admired, most notably Silvius Leopold Weiss, whose music Bach arranged for BWV 1025, a sonata for violin and continuo. So whether or not Bach could actually play the instrument, it's not outside the realm of likely possibility that he composed some of these works for Weiss or some other lutenist. There are four suites and a handful of shorter pieces that are frequently described as having been composed for lute. But it's also possible that Bach conceived of some of these works, such as the suite in E minor, which we're going to begin with, more in connection with the Lautenwerk, a lute-keyboard hybrid instrument with gut strings designed to emulate the timbral qualities of a lute. This instrument, two of which are known to have been in Bach's possession in later years, is almost certainly the instrument that the composer himself would have used to play these pieces. So, are they really lute pieces, or merely keyboard pieces that could be played on the lute? Whereas some of the movements feature rather modest textures and seem on the whole well adapted to the lute, others exploit thick, complex textures which present definite problems to lutenists and guitarists, who often are forced to change keys, as in the performance we'll be using, and or simplify them somewhat. At any rate, we'll turn first to the suite in E minor, BWV 996, in six movements, and composed between 1712 and 1717. It begins with an introduction, rather similar in type to those we've heard before in various staccatos and preludes for solo instruments, somewhat improvisatory in nature, but with repeated motivic ideas that guarantee a sense of continuity. The opening line undulates around with repeated references to the opening motives and alternately suggesting dominant and tonic chords for the most part. It gradually descends over two octaves in the first four measures, concluding with a final descending flourish and a full tonic chord. The second part of the introduction alternates florid lines of sixteenth notes with repeated chordal figures in dotted rhythms, which go through a series of different dominant tonic relationships before finally arriving on a dominant seventh in the original key. Here is the beginning of that second part. Thank you. 
What comes next is a change in meter to 3-8, a tempo marking of presto, and a fugal section, not surprising after the introduction we just heard. The six-measure subject begins with an ascending leap up to the fifth scale degree and then proceeds to work its way down back to tonic, starting with eighth notes and finishing with sixteenths. Here is a simplified version of the first two measures. The next two measures of the subject duplicate the first two down a step, while the last two measures begin that pattern down another step, but cut off when they've reached the tonic note. The imitation, a fifth lower, comes in a measure later, tagging on a couple of extra bars to confirm a cadence on the tonic. Harmonically, we hear a neat little sequential progression, each chord resolving down a fifth from the one preceding it, until the pattern is broken to pull us back to E minor. Here's an excerpt showing the last bars of the introduction leading into the fugue subject and its first imitation. As you could hear, the lower line then picks up the subject down an octave, following through for four measures before breaking off to prepare another cadence, where the texture briefly blossoms into three parts. The top line counterpoint above the subject is a little different this time, setting up new tonicizations or dominant tonic relationships that increase the sense of momentum. As you also heard, the subject then reappears again in the lower line, with the accompanying counterpoint now having dropped into the lower octave, creating a slightly muddy texture. The subject is cut off again, and the fourth bar of the pattern is repeated again and again, each time a step higher as it drives toward a cadence on E minor. Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard the subject return again in the top line in the original octave but it's again cut off after a few measures as both lines toss around motives from the opening bars of the subject and variants of those motives as we head toward G major. Meanwhile, the texture has expanded to four actual lines, although it drops back to two lines as the subject is stated in G major, returning to four only in the last few measures, with the motives, especially the 16th note pattern from the opening bars, quoted and requoted as we move to the final cadence back in E minor.
The next movement is an allemande in common time, showing many of the common characteristics of its type. There is some motivic repetition here, notably the opening gesture of an ascending triad followed by a descending scale passage in sixteenth notes, starting from the same note an octave higher. But there is still a relatively loose, improvisatory feel about the movement because of the many variants of the main motivic ideas that occur. Here is the first section, which modulates briefly to G major in measure 4, but ends on the dominant back in E minor. True to expectations, the second section, which begins on the dominant, echoes many of the same motives as the first section, although even more variants are introduced and developed. We, however, are going to move along to the next movement. It's a courant, in 3-2 and still naturally in E minor. It begins in the darker bass clef range of the instrument and features some closely spaced dissonances, as it quickly, although just temporarily, makes its way first to G major, then, after a quick return to E minor, to C major, and two measures later, back to G, all in the first seven measures. I'm going to play the entire second section this time, starting in G major, but beginning a modulation to A minor already by the third measure. It resembles the first section in some ways, but introduces new motivic ideas as it begins in a higher octave and works its way back down to closely spaced chords in the lower range, similar to those in the first section. The last four bars are in some ways the most impressive, introducing repeated, new, quicker motives based on two sixteenths and an eighth, and three measures before the end, making use of an impressive, chromatically ascending line, first in the top part and later in the bottom, as it heads to the final cadence on E, raised to E major with a Picardy third.
The next movement is a sarabande in 3-2, no tempo marking indicated, but normally played at a stately tempo. This one begins with a full texture, three and sometimes four real parts in the middle and lower range of the instrument. Upper or lower mordants or trills are frequently applied to accented melody notes of longer duration, here as in other pieces in this suite. The somber first section is only eight bars in length, with no literal motivic repetition. The opening phrase begins on the fifth scale degree with a sustained chord, moves up melodically to the sixth very briefly before working back down the scale. But the sixth scale degree, the C, always heard as a dissonance, which adds to the overall sense of austerity, that C is persistent, and the melodic line leaps back to it in the next measure. The melody then gradually undulates all the way down to the tonic in measures 3 and 4. But we briefly peek on C again as an upper neighbor before making our final descent to a cadence on E minor. The next four bars introduce a relatively more dynamic motive featuring descending 16th notes as the music touches briefly on G major. But we move quickly back to E minor and end the section on its dominant chord. The second section, twice as long at 16 bars, starts up in B minor with a new, more richly harmonized version of the melodic idea that opened the first section. But this time we move not to the relative major key, but, very briefly, toward C major. Bach actually does make some oblique references to the first section melodic contour in the process, but C major soon yields to a dominant chord on D, which sets up the expectation that a cadence on G major is very likely to follow. But Bach has apparently decided that that would be just a little too predictable. Instead, the D major chord resolves to the dominant seventh of B minor, and then B minor itself right after that. That doesn't appear to be a particularly outrageous maneuver, since, after all, the second section began in the key of B minor. But even though the voice leading from the D major chord to the dominant 7th of B minor, it's actually an F-sharp 7 chord with the 7th in the bass, even though the voice leading appears reasonable enough on paper, the modulation, at least initially, seems a bit disorienting. Here's an excerpt from the beginning of the second section to the modulation back to B minor. Thank you. 
As you probably noticed at the end of my excerpt, B minor is transformed into B major. But Bach has no intention of sticking to this new key. He uses the chord to give a sense of finality to the phrase. He's back in B minor soon enough and, four measures later, in the original tonic key of E minor, where he brings the movement to a close after making a few final references to the thematic material from the first section. The bourree is a delightful movement, in two-part counterpoint throughout, but displaying plenty of rhythmic energy. The piece begins with an upbeat pattern of two eighth notes and is based almost entirely on repeated, closely related, long, short-short, quarter-eighth-eighth rhythmic figures in mostly stepwise motion from that point on. Beginning as usual in E minor, the eight-measure first section veers toward G major already by measure four and closes there with a four-part G major chord. The 16-measure second section focuses on similar rhythmic patterns, although the melodic shape of the opening two measures, which dominates the entire section in original or variant form, is a little different, making use of more leaps, sometimes triad-based. Starting on G major, it moves quickly to A minor before touching on a series of other tonal areas in quick succession, often following the circle of fifths. The final movement, a gigue in 12-8 time, is a very ambitious and quite virtuosic movement, but it's based on very simple thematic materials. The first measure presents, after a 16th note rest, a descending scale passage, starting in 16th notes, but moving to longer note values as it proceeds. We'll call this basic pattern motive A. In my simplified example, it's followed by an ascending scale passage in eighth notes as it is in measure one, but that's not always the case later in the movement. The first idea is presented in the lowest layer of the texture, which we'll refer to as the bass line. Just a little more than one beat later, the tenor line comes in with another idea, an arpeggio figure in 16th notes featuring an ascending octave leap near the end, and often followed by a descending line of sixteenths similar to what I just described as motive A. This second arpeggio-based idea we'll call motive B. Sometimes it's prefaced with two ascending stepwise pickup notes, but as we'll soon see, that's not always the case. Here's a simplified example showing motive B as heard in the first measure. These two ideas do not generate the entire 10-measure first section by themselves, but they are in evidence in one form or another throughout. Here's the first section in an actual performance. The texture is in two or three parts most of the time, 
although the final chord on E minor is in four parts. There is some imitation, not at all unusual for a gigue, but it's somewhat freer than is often the case. When the top voice enters in measure two, it does so with an arpeggio-based figure that resembles what I described earlier as motive B, but motive B missing its first three notes. It proceeds to the descending sixteenths of what I earlier referred to as motive A. These two ideas pop up again and again in one voice or another, often with one voice answering another, although it's probably the arpeggio pattern connected with motive B that is most dominant and easiest to hear. Other things to take note of are the reliance on parallel thirds, sometimes between the tenor and bass parts, and sometimes also involving the upper voice. Also, in measure three, the chromatically ascending line harmonized by a series of quickly resolving secondary dominant chords. It's an interesting harmonic effect reminiscent of similar passages in earlier movements. The first section closed on the dominant chord in E minor, and the second section begins the same way, although it immediately heads back toward E minor. Motivically, Bach focuses on motive A, that descending line in sixteenth notes, but as usual, for the second section of a gigue, he inverts it, the passage now ascending up a sixth before heading back down again. This new version of motive A begins in the tenor line, but is imitated immediately in the bass down a fifth and in the top voice up an octave just a beat later. Eventually, the arpeggios associated with motive B make their appearance as well, and soon the chromatic line noted in the first section also appears, but it too is inverted, moving down by step in alternating quarter and eighth notes as the arpeggiated chords move down by step below it. A passage in parallel sixths appears, a counterpart to the parallel thirds in the first section. Some interesting new ideas do emerge, most notably a syncopated exchange between the top two voices against arpeggios in the bottom voice. Soon, arpeggio patterns dominate both top and bottom as we again surge upwards with a series of dominant tonic relationships, again echoing the first section. The pattern is broken in the last three measures as motives A and B both return, and the last measure closes with a string of parallel sixths.
It's really quite an impressive suite. The textures may not be as consistently complex or as varied as those written strictly for keyboard, but all of the movements are well integrated motivically and generally easy to follow, even on first hearing. Furthermore, Bach's use of harmony is inventive and sometimes even surprising in the way we've come to expect from his presumably more ambitious works. We're going to take a somewhat briefer look at a second suite, BWV 997 in C minor, also designated as For the Lute and the hybrid keyboard lute instrument I mentioned earlier. We'll start with the prelude in common time. It's rather different from the opening prelude of the E minor suite. It seems on the whole to be less improvisatory in nature, less prone perhaps to rhythmic and tempo manipulations. It relies frequently on distinctive rhythmic ideas, often repeated and figuration-based flows of 16th notes. This is not to suggest that a performer should take a machine-like approach to the music, but that the musical patterns will seem more coherent if delivered with a certain degree of metric precision. The opening motive is a simple but distinctive one. Beginning on the tonic note with offbeat 16th notes, it moves up the scale in a combination of steps and skips, its most distinctive feature being the accented raised 7th scale degree or leading tone on beat 3, a note which in the implied harmonic context is a non-harmonic tone. This figure is played twice more as the lower or bass line moves down the C minor scale, mostly on beats 1 and 4, against it. In the fourth bar, the pattern in the top voice breaks, and a descending scale line of 16th notes takes us back down the scale, pausing on the dominant note, then leaping up a seventh before descending again into a tonic C minor cadence, reaffirmed by the bass line which has broken off its pattern in order to help solidify the 5-1 cadence. So the first three bars are the same melodically, but of course they sound very different, because the descending bass line forces an harmonic reinterpretation each time. This is the sort of thing you can find elsewhere in Bach and plenty of other composers, even in some fairly recent popular music styles. Still, I can't think of a simpler, more direct, and straightforward example of the way in which harmonic reinterpretation of a melodic figure can make it sound, if not brand new, then at least markedly different from one repetition to another. Here's a performance of the first five bars, ending with a cadence on C minor. The original score is again transposed down half a step by the performer. I'm only going to talk about one other prominent melodic pattern, and it's basically a figuration pattern which, unlike the example we just talked about, is itself adapted to changing harmonic circumstances. That is, the notes in the pattern actually change somewhat to fit the new harmonic context. This pattern is introduced in measure 7 and is heard in various guises several times after that, each time modified to fit the changing harmonies as we proceed through the movement. Here is a simplified example. 
Here's an excerpt starting again from the beginning, this time extending through measures 8 and 9, where the figuration pattern is introduced. Various changes of key take place as we proceed, and the opening measures are at one point repeated in the key of G minor, and with some variation, again in F minor. At one point, the harmonic rhythm is slowed as we proceed through the circle of fifths, with new repeated figuration patterns. And then, in the final four measures, we do hear a somewhat more improvisational approach with two back-to-back -back fermatas, which redirect the key from G minor back to C minor, confirmed by the final two measures and the six-part chord that closes the movement. Here's an excerpt showing some of those repeated figuration patterns, leading to the freer, more improvisational-sounding conclusion. We're going to move on now to the fugal movement that follows, in C minor and 6-8 time. It's not a particularly conventional fugue, although the subject has some striking features. After an eighth rest, it starts on the tonic note and ascends up a fifth in eighth notes, before plunging down a seventh to then begin a rising chromatic line in dotted quarter notes that ends back on the tonic and then proceeds to an ornate cadence figure. But the issue is immediately complicated by a counter-subject introduced by a second lower voice, jumping in in the second measure and blending into the subject with a motive in eighth notes that initially resembles an inversion of the subject's opening motive. The second voice continues to move below the subject and in faster note values, but the situation is reversed in measure four and thereafter the two parts switch back and forth. Here are the first seven measures, ending on a dominant chord.
As you can hear right at the end of my excerpt, it's at that point, measure 7, where the imitation comes in, a fifth higher. Here we move to three parts, the subject in the top voice, the counter-subject, slightly varied, in the middle, and a new simpler and less active bass line confirming the harmonic progressions. As we proceed, there are naturally episodes where no imitation is present, but that doesn't mean that Bach is not drawing on the original subject or counter-subject for motives. Here's one such episode, which comes in at the end of the first imitative entrance, and which quickly hints at various tonal centers before stabilizing on C minor. It employs a motive heard in the second half of measure 4 of the subject, and thereafter in the counter-subject as well. It involves ties across strong beats, and a repeated pattern of 8th to 16th eighth, and is usually heard in the middle voice. Here's a simplified example. Here's an excerpt beginning with the initial imitation of the subject and the episode which follows it. My excerpt also included the beginning of the next round of imitation, back in C minor, with the subject now appearing in the lowest voice. As we move on, we hear the subject presented in other keys, notably E-flat major, and we also encounter episodes where parts of the subject, usually the ascending line and the descending plunge from the first two measures, appear in one voice or another. On one occasion, the subject is divided up between the lowest voice, which presents the first two measures, and the highest, which picks up the theme at that point and finishes it off. So much of this fugue follows standard Bachian practices, but not all of it. For Bach, after the opening fugal section of 49 measures, comes to a solid cadence and fermata on C minor. What follows is quite unusual for Bach, a contrasting middle section, much in the nature of a contrasting middle section in a da capo aria, 61 measures long. I refer to this as a contrasting section because major portions of it are devoted to more neutral scale passages in 16th notes, which, while they take us through some interesting harmonic effects, don't have much to do with the first section of the movement. That is not to say that there are no references to the opening fugue subject. The descending scale in the eighth notes after the eighth rest, the countersubject's adaptation of the subject's first measure, that appears periodically, although it doesn't draw that much attention to itself. The chromatic ascending line in dotted quarters from the second and third measures of the subject also appears and is very noticeable indeed. 
Still, it's hard not to think that the middle section isn't a bit diffuse, despite its reference to the fugue subject, and when we take the DS sign and head back to repeat the whole first fugal section again, it's hard not to think that covering the same ground again will be less than exciting. As Bach scholar Malcolm Boyd has noted, one cannot regret that this unproductive marriage of da capo form and fugue held only a limited appeal for Bach. We're going to take a short look at Movement 3, a somewhat somber Sarabande. As is so often the case, it presents its most distinctive melodic idea in the opening measures. It begins with a full four-part chord harmonizing the upper tonic C, which, with a quick 30-second note flick, moves up a third to E-flat, and then meanders down the scale in parallel sixths, with a tonic note deep in the bass acting as a reiterated pedal. In measure two, the upper part of the texture sustains a diminished chord, which is eventually to be revealed as a full diminished seventh chord natural to the key, while the bottom line repeats the original top-line melodic motive down three octaves. Here's what it sounds like. The first motivic idea then disappears for a while, and the next 14 measures, which make up the first section of the movement, consist mostly of a flow of 16th notes, some arpeggio-based and some scale-wise, with a few large ascending and descending leaps sprinkled in. What does continue from the first two bars is the frequent repetition of the tonic C in the bass line in the next five bars, which acts as a pedal to anchor the upper voices while they hint briefly at other tonal centers. Here's another excerpt starting with measure three and continuing on for the next six measures and ending on the dominant chord. We're going to skip now to the second section, which totals 16 bars like the first. Not surprisingly, it begins in the relative major key of E-flat, and reintroduces the opening motive of the first section in that new key. But it does so freely, the main melodic pattern now starting on the third of the chord in E-flat, rather than on the tonic as it did before. When the motive is echoed in the bass a measure later, it does start on the tonic note the E-flat, but Bach has cleverly changed the function of that note. It's no longer the root of the chord, which sounds above it. It is now the flat seventh of the chord, which is actually functioning as a dominant seventh chord in B-flat major. I know this is a little difficult to envision without a score, and I don't want to overstate the case. Bach goes on to other clever maneuvers in the second section as well, before ending up back on the original tonic. But this is the kind of subtle manipulation of harmony at which Bach excels, and so I think it's worth pointing it out. 
Here are the opening measures of the second section, including the progression to which I just referred. We're going to move on now to a gig, but not the gig from the suite in C minor, rather the gig from VWV 995, the suite in G minor, widely assumed to be a transcription slash adaptation to the lute of BWV 1011, the suite for unaccompanied cello in C minor. Since the cello suite manuscript predates the lute version by some time, it would naturally be considered to be the source composition, unless somehow there were an earlier lute version now lost. But regardless, the lute version, the G minor suite, is not by any means a simple transcription of the cello piece, simply adjusted to a new key, as we will see. We talked about the unaccompanied cello suites in episode 15, but I'm going to take another quick look at the fifth suite, just the final movement, the gig, in order to compare the two versions. We'll hear the original cello version first, the first 15 bars of the first section. The movement is in 3-8, with a pickup note on the dominant, and makes use of the same rhythmic pattern, a dotted eighth followed by a sixteenth, and then another eighth, through the entire section, broken only by an alternative pattern that substitutes three sixteenths in the second half of the measure, in connection with an ascending sequence that peaks an octave higher from the starting point. Here now is the version for lute, the same 15 bars, transposed to a new key. Clearly, this is not a simple transcription. While the lute version still relies heavily on the same characteristic rhythm of a dotted eighth followed by a sixteenth and then another eighth, it does not begin with that figure, but rather the alternative pattern I just described, where three sixteenth notes take the place of the final sixteenth and eighth. And of course, the lute version adds harmonic support not present in the cello version. This comes in first on the last eighth note of the second measure and makes a significant impact on the downbeat of the third measure, where the added note, a third below the original note, results in the impression that we are hearing a bit of imitation, with the opening motive now heard down a fifth in a second voice, as it were. You may recall that when we first talked about box pieces for unaccompanied cello and for unaccompanied violin, I made the point that even when Bach is not using multiple stops, he still often gives the impression of the music unfolding in simultaneous layers, that there are two streams of counterpoint, or even more, being implied even if not explicitly stated. 
As the cello version of this gig unfolds, the same is true here as well. It does seem that there are two streams operating simultaneously, one in the higher part of the range and one in the lower. But having said that, those implied streams are, in the lute version, given a very real and clearly audible reality, and harmonic relationships become unmistakable. Here's the cello version again from measures 5 through 13. Now here is the corresponding passage in the lute version. Are these two versions startlingly different? Of course not, but the greater harmonic clarity of the lute version seems to me undeniable. For example, in measure 13, we arrive at a cadence in the relative major. Can you hear that in the cello version? Yes. Can you hear it much better in the lute version, where Bach has provided an actual 5-1 bass line below the melodic activity? Of course. Now, it's always possible to suggest that the more subtle harmonic effects are really the superior ones, and that is almost certainly true in some cases. But the point here is not that the lute version is superior to the original cello version, but that it adds some features not present in the original and therefore provides a different listening experience. That's it for this episode. For our next, we'll look at Bach's cantatas for bass soloist. <laughs>